Welcome to Old Treasures Made New, your devotional podcast on the go or at home, where we read the scriptures and reflect on them with those from the past. Today we're reading Mark 15, verses 1 to 15, and then through J.C. Ryle's expository thoughts in Mark. Please take a moment to pause and to ask the Holy Spirit to bring understanding and to apply what we hear. Mark, chapter 15, verses 1 to 15. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in their insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want for me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him up to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. These verses begin the chapter in which Mark describes the slaying of the Son of God, who takes away the sin of the world. It is a part of the gospel history which should always be read with peculiar reverence. We should call to mind that Christ was cut off, not for himself, but for us. Daniel 9.26 We should remember that his death is the life of our souls, and unless his blood had been shed, we must have perished miserably in our sins. Let us mark in these verses what a striking proof the Jewish rulers gave to their own nation that the times the Messiah had come. The chapter opens with the fact that the chief priests bound Jesus and delivered him to Pilate, the Roman governor. Why did they do so? because they had no longer had the power of putting anyone to death, and they were under the dominion of the Romans. By this one act indeed, they declare that the prophecy of Jacob was fulfilled. Quote, the scepter had departed from Judah, and the lawgiver from between his feet, and Shiloh the Messiah, whom God had promised to send, must have come. Genesis 49 verse 10 Yet there is nothing whatever to show that they remembered this prophecy. Their eyes were blinded, they either could not or would not see what they were doing. Let us never forget that wicked men are often fulfilling God's predictions to their own ruin and yet know it not. In the very height of their madness, folly, and unbelief, they are often unconsciously supplying fresh evidence that the Bible is true. The unhappy scoffers who make a jest of all serious religion can scarcely talk of Christianity without ridicule and scorn would do well to remember that their conduct was long ago foreseen and foretold. There shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts. 2 Peter 3.3 3. 
Let us mark, secondly, in these verses, the meekness and lowliness of our Lord Jesus Christ. When he stood before Pilate's bar and he was accused of many things, he answered nothing. Though the charges against him were false and he knew no sin, he was content to endure the contradiction of sinners against himself, not answering again. Hebrews 12.3 Though he was innocent of any transgression, he submitted to bear groundless accusations made against him without a murmur. Great is the contrast between the second Adam and the first. Our first father Adam was guilty and yet tried to excuse himself. The second Adam was guiltless and yet made no defense at all. As a sheep before her shears is silent, so he does not open his mouth. Isaiah 53.7 Let us learn a practical lesson from our Savior's example. Let us learn to suffer patiently and not to complain, whatever God may think fit to lay upon us. Let us take heed of our own ways that we offend not in our tongues in the hour of temptation. Psalm 39 verse 1 Let us beware of giving way to irritation and ill temper, however provoking and undeserved our trials may seem to be. Nothing in the Christian character glorifies God so much as patient suffering. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. 1 Peter 2, 20 and 21. Let us mark, thirdly, in these verses, the wavering and undecided conduct of Pilate. It is clear from the passage before us that Pilate was convinced of our Lord's innocence. He knew that the chief priests had delivered him for envy. We see him feebly struggling for a time to obtain our Lord's acquittal and to satisfy his own conscience. At last, he yields to the inopportunity of the Jews and, willing to satisfy the people, delivers Jesus to be crucified to the eternal disgrace and ruin of his own soul. A man in high place without religious principles is one of the most pitiable sights in the world. It is like a large ship tossed to and fro on the sea without compass or rudder. His very greatness surrounds him with temptations and snares. It gives him power for good or evil, which, if he knows not how to use it aright, is sure to bring him into many difficulties and to make him unhappy. Let us pray much. For great men. They need great grace to keep them from the devil. High places are slippery places. No wonder that Paul recommends intercession for kings and all are in authority. 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. Let us not envy great men. They have many and peculiar temptations. How hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. Jeremiah 45, 5. Let us mark, fourthly, in these verses, the exceeding guilt of the Jews in the matter of the death of Christ. At the eleventh hour, the chief priests had an opportunity of repenting if they would have taken it. They had the choice given them whether Jesus or Barabbas should be let go free. Coolly and deliberately, they persevered in their bloody work. They chose to have a murderer let go free. They chose to have the Prince of Life put to death. The power of putting our Lord to death was no longer theirs. The responsibility of his death they publicly took upon themselves. What shall I do? 
Then, with the one you call King of the Jews, was Pilate's question. Crucify him, crucify him, was the dreadful answer. The agents in our Lord's death were undoubtedly Gentiles, but the guilt of our Lord's death must always be chiefly placed upon the Jews. We marvel at the wickedness of the Jews at this part of our Lord's history, and no wonder. To reject Christ and choose Barabbas was indeed an astounding act. It seems as if blindness, madness, and folly could go no further. But let us take heed that we do not unwittingly follow their example. Let us beware that we are not found at last to have chosen Barabbas and rejected Christ. The service of sin and the service of God are continually before us. The friendship of the world and the friendship of Christ are continually pressed upon our notice. Are we making the right choice? Are we cleaving to the right friend? These are solemn questions. Happy is he who can give them a satisfactory answer. Let us mark, finally, in these verses, what a striking type the release of Barabbas affords of the gospel plan of salvation. The guilty is set free, and the innocent is put to death. The great sinner is delivered, and the sinless one remains bound. Barabbas is spared, and Christ is crucified. We have in this striking fact a vivid emblem of the manner in which God pardons and justifies the ungodly. He does it because Christ has suffered in their stead, the just for the unjust. They deserve punishment, but a mighty substitute has been offered for them. They deserve eternal death, but a glorious surety has died for them. We are all by nature in the position of Barabbas. We are guilty, wicked, and worthy of condemnation. But when we were without hope, Christ the innocent died for the ungodly. And now God, for the sake of Christ, can be just and yet the justifier of the one who believes in Jesus. Let us bless God that we have such a glorious salvation set before us. Our plea must ever be, not that we are deserving of acquittal, but that Christ has died for us. Let us take heed that having so great a salvation, we really make use of it for our own souls. May we never rest until we can say by faith, Christ is mine. I deserve hell, but Christ has died for me, and believing in him I have a hope of heaven. That is the end of Ryle's expository thoughts for these verses. Let us carefully consider what we have heard today, and may the Lord be pleased to bring the growth for his glory. In considering what we've just heard, would you prayerfully ask yourself and others the following questions? First, as we read this part of gospel history, which Ryle says should always be read with peculiar reverence, would we pray that we would see with fresh eyes what can be so familiar? Second, when we suffer, do we complain and excuse ourselves like the first Adam, or do we suffer patiently like the second? Are we prone to irritation and an ill temper when suffering comes? Third, do we pity our leaders, godly or not, and pray for them, knowing that high places are slippery places? Fourth, the service of sin and the service of God are continually before us. The friendship of the world and the friendship of Christ are continually pressed upon our notice. Are we making the right choice?
Are we cleaving to the right friend? And fifth, are we aware of our great need of the perfect substitute, or are we prone to think we deserve being released? Do we, as Ryle says, make use of the cross for our own souls? Can we say, Christ is mine, I deserve hell, but Christ has died for me, and believing in him I have a hope of heaven?